Oh, what, what a joy to be here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for loving your local church. Thank you for loving and singing to the glory of our Savior together. It is just, I feel like I'm among family when I'm at this conference. I, um, this has been, this conference has been my school of worship for 19 years. I feel like pretty much everything I've learned about what God's word has to say about gathered worship, I've learned in this setting and in these classrooms, whether it's here or somewhere else, sitting in classrooms, listening to seminars, processing things with team, going back and wanting to serve our church more effectively. So it's just a privilege and a joy to get to be here again. So thank you for having me. I love Bob and Julie and grateful for you guys and our relationship over the years. We're, um, we're gonna study God's word. So we gotta get to work here. John chapter one. We continue worshiping God as we look together at his word. I could, uh, I could point to friendships that have developed in this conference. I could point to locations in settings where this conference has been held, where the Holy Spirit met me in a profound way and ministered deeply to my soul. I could... I could take you through, this might be less interesting, but I could take you through kind of key songs that have been sung since the years that I've been attending this conference that have just stood out to me and been a source of grace to me that I still go back to and sing uh, in private worship. So uh, what a joy to look together at God's word with you. We're looking at John chapter one. The prologue of John's gospel is too high and too lofty. For, for the human mind. It is truly sublime. It is too holy for words. And yet we dive in asking the Lord to reveal to us what's here. So if you would follow along, John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh, God, would you meet us in the opening of your holy word? 
Would you communicate truth from the sacred page? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, carry truth into our hearts, bring it home to our hearts so that we're transformed more and more as we behold the glory of this one, this eternal word made flesh. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My perspective of Jesus, my, my Jesus, if you will, was too small in 1998. I was in, a, I was in a dark place spiritually. I drifted in the error of thinking that my relationship with God depended on my daily performance for God, and I was trying really, really hard to obey him perfectly. I was reading material that came to me about Christian perfectionism, and I was working at it with everything I had. And, and, and yet, through that whole season, there was this low-grade fever of guilt, and I couldn't shake it. And, and, and the problem with low-grade fever is it makes you sluggish. And sluggish Christianity and sluggish Christian obedience wasn't working well for me because that's exactly what I didn't want. And yet this guilt was, it was a perfect storm that was brewing in my own heart. And I came across these authors and they were, they were high on rigor, they were low on joy. They were high on holiness, they were low on assurance of salvation. They made the kingdom seem really, really small. The kingdom was getting smaller and smaller with every book that I read to where it felt like it was just pretty much me and the author. And maybe a few other people were still in the kingdom, people who were seriously devoted to obedience to Jesus and his word. And you catch me in 1999, the beginning of 1999, and my soul is cracked. My soul is parched and dry, and the joy that I had in Christ in previous years was, was almost impossible to see. And one of God's gifts that came to me in the year 1999 was the Gospel of John. John John's gospel in John 1 resized my Jesus. It, it changed everything. It gave me a new perspective on his all-sufficiency, his power, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, the certainty of his promises being fulfilled. And there are people who will be in our churches this Sunday. Mark it well. There are people who will be in your churches. There might be people in this room. And your Jesus is too small. He's too small. So John 1 wants a word. John 1 wants to resize our view of Jesus. And the first 18 verses, the prologue of John's gospel, it's considered prologue, which means that the 21 chapters that John develops in his gospel are distilled here into 18 verses. This is concentrate. This is, he distills it down into one single drop, and it's all here what he'll develop more fully in 21 chapters, which is why we're really going to confine our time not to explore everything here. But our interest is mainly in Jesus' description of the eternal word in verse 1 to 3 and the word made flesh in verse 14. So two points, the eternal word and the word made flesh. Here we meet, point number one, in verse one, we meet the eternal word. Look at it with me again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There is an undeniable mystery to the incarnation of the Son of God. 
J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this is where the, the staggering mystery of the Christian faith lies, right here. If you get this, that Jesus was the God-man, everything else falls into place. But if we miss this, we're off track forever, right? And he talks about just the glorious mystery of the incarnation. The 17th century pastor and Puritan, Stephen Charnock, reached toward the mystery when he said this, that the same person should have both glory and grief, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation, he says, astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. It is a wondrous thing that God became man. God took on flesh. We feel the mystery of this, right? Even in every day, if, if you've got kids parenting children, there, there's a couple of questions that if that comes up, curious kids, young age, and they're asking curious questions, there are a few areas where it's like you, you start to feel nervous. If they bring up the Trinity, if they bring up the Incarnation, if they bring up Solomon's concubines, right? <laughs> it, uh, any of those things, like, let's just not go there, right? Let's just kind of stay over here where we can answer questions, where we know things better, right? We struggle to answer those questions, right? Dad and mom, why is Jesus hungry? Does God get hungry? I, I didn't know God gets hungry. Or, or how did he say he didn't know something? I thought God knows everything, right? So you're just reading through the Gospels, maybe reading aloud as a family. You're just bumping into all these issues, difficulties, mysteries, and we struggle to answer those kinds of questions, not because we lack faith, but because we lack omniscience. <laughs> we, we don't have the mind of the infinite, all-knowing God. J.C. Ryle said of this passage, there is much here that we cannot explain and must be content humbly to believe. He said, let us here in John 1 be like little children. Oh, may that be the case. Just, just verse 1 and 2, you just put that together, right? There are perhaps not two more theologically loaded sentences back-to-back -back in the entire Bible, maybe, than verse 1 and 2. This is the stuff that creeds and confessions are made of in verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I, I hope this isn't, I trust in a room like this, this isn't a spoiler. The Word is Jesus. Okay, so that's where we're going, that he's going to get there eventually, right? Um, the Word is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, how'd you get there? You might be thinking, how'd you get there? Because I see all this Word language, but I don't see this Jesus language. Well, well it's here. You just gotta, you gotta look for it. So, verse 14. He talks about the Word. He's been talking about the Word all through this chapter, and then he comes to verse 14. And the Word, that Word that was with God in the beginning and was God, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then there's a kind of parenthetical remark there in verse 15. And then verse 16, so he's just talking in verse 14 about full of grace and truth. Verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus, there's the prestige. It's sort of like the end of the magic act and they bring out the end. There's the prestige. It comes around and he reveals. This is the big reveal. It's Jesus. 
He's been here a while. He's not as young as he looks. You see him in the major. He's not as young as he looks. He's the eternal son of God who became man, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. He was, blows the mind. He was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. He's still the God-man. He's still mystery of mysteries, has lungs and a nervous system and a brain. It's an amazing, amazing thing. There was a, a fourth century heresy called Arianism that argued that Jesus was a created being, that he was not in the beginning in the same way that God was in the beginning. But this same Jesus, you keep tracking with him in John's gospel, and he himself says, before Abraham was, I am. John 17, he's praying. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you're praying with somebody and they say something that you didn't think the sentence was going to end that way. It kind of took a turn. You're like, huh, that was, that was different, right? I'm wondering if that happened a little bit in John 17. He's got his disciples around. He's praying in that moment, and he says this, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's a kind of, huh, didn't see it was going in that particular direction. The pre-existence of Jesus. So Arius, who, who claimed that Jesus was God-like but not God, was just wrong. Just plain wrong. He was also allegedly slapped by St. Nicholas for that heresy. <laughs> That's a Santa Claus I can get behind. I've kind of... <laughs> I hope That's true. <laughs> uh. The idea that was popularized even more recently in the Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown, that you know, early Christians, they didn't really believe that he was the divine son. The divinity of Christ was kind of added later on. It's just bogus. Listen to the one who was there. John saw him. John ate meals with him. John watched him die. He had blood splatter from the cross. This man was there. And then now looking back, maybe 40 or 50 years later, he looks back and he won't wait one verse in his gospel before he says, here's who he is. He's God. He's always been God. He's the eternal son of God, the divine son you think about the way that the Gospels develop, and they each have their own way of pointing to the glory of Jesus Christ. And, but they each in their own way start with these origin narratives. So Matthew's Gospel walks you back 2,000 years to promises that were made to David. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He walks you all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and shows you the continuity between the promise that God made to Abraham and the arrival of the Christ child. In Bethlehem, Luke goes even further. Luke traces the lineage all the way back to Adam. And then John, however, not to be outdone, John points to the upper deck, right? John swings for the fences. John, John ties a string to the manger in Bethlehem and walks you back past Daniel and David and Abraham and Noah and Adam and let there be light. And he stands you there at the precipice of eternity past, and he sticks a quarter in that little machine that you can look through, and he just says, he's back there. How far? As far as it goes. He's back there eternally. He, he, 
continues being God. He continues being with God as far back as that goes. These, these was verbs in verse 1 and 2, they're in the imperfect tense. They're highlighting this continuous state. One scholar put it this way. Verse 1, he said, could be translated, quote, in the beginning, the word was wasing. <laughs> Just keeps wasing. As far back as you go, he's still wasing and wasing and wasing, continuing to be with God, continuing to be God. And you pull this chapter together with, with its movement from eternity past in verse 1 to Christmas morning in verse 14, we learn that the baby born to a peasant girl in the city of David, though fully human in every respect, was and is at the same time the almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. So the Nicene Creed said, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the one through whom all things were created. What's that mean? What's that tell us? It tells you looking at Jesus in the manger, two things are true simultaneously. Touching his true humanity, he's going to need Mary's care to survive. He will need the sustenance of his parents. He will be genuinely hungry, genuinely thirsty, genuinely needy, needy but tr touching his true divinity, he is from the manger upholding the molecules of the manger, of the oxen, of his mother, and of the universe by the word of his power. Behold our awesome God. Glorious in all of his ways. In John 1, we meet the eternal word, fully God, and we meet the word made flesh. The word made flesh, fully man. The word became flesh. He became fully human, really human. This was not a photo op. Hebrews says the only difference was he didn't sin. Everything else was the same, except he didn't sin. Several years back, my, my boys and I got really, really excited about this show that came on television during that time, and it was called uh, Man vs. Wild. Yeah. And there was this uh, British guy with a, just an awesome accent, and he's called Bear Grylls. And he would just go into the, he would be dropped out of a plane into the wasteland of the world, you know, into the, just into the jungle somewhere or who knows where. And he would have to find his way. He'd have a camera crew and have to find his way toward civilization and he'd have a camera with him and sometimes he'd have the camera late at night and you'd hear the rain falling on this, you know, ramshackle tent that he made out of leave, bay leaves and stuff and he just puts this stuff together and he's talking to the camera and he's, you know, he's, he's like, oh, it's, I'm so tired and that's a terrible English accent. Anyway, <laughs> and he's just going on and on about how hard it is to rough it out here in the wilderness and then Word broke, there was a camera angle that leaked out to the internet. He was scaling across this, this cavern, and he's walking across this thing, and he's supposed to be way out in the wilderness. Well, there was a camera angle that was leaked from a camera guy, and you could see a highway about a half a mile from the cavern. And there were cars pouring down. It's like there's six flags just right there. 
you know, these cars <laughs> just pouring down this highway. And when we saw that, the Mason boys were just devastated. We we're like, his name's probably not even Bear. <laughs> He's, <laughs> the English accent's fake. Like everything, what could, what is even true in the world, right? He's, He's not roughing it in the wild. He climbed a tree, snapped a picture, and slept at the Hilton. That's, it should be called Man versus Hilton. In verse 14, though, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He really came all the way here. As the hymn said, he left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. He came. And wonder of wonders, he came for us. Verse 14, there's this rich Old Testament imagery in place. In the Old Testament, when uh, when God rescued Israel from, from Egypt and slavery there, they were, they were a mobile people. They, they were people without a homeland. They were a wandering, sojourning people. And, and they would follow the cloud, right? And the pillar of fire. And when the pillar of fire stopped, we camp. We make camp here. And tents go up as far as the eye can see. Probably two million strong people from all these tribes just spread out as far as you can see. And in Numbers chapter 2, there's a sort of divinely ordered sleeping arrangement for where everybody's going to be, where Reuben's family's back over there and the tribe of Judah, 75,000 men plus women and children, they're over there. Just all the tents go up and all the families and the tribes are all represented. And right in the middle of all the tents is God's tent. He traveled with his homeless, exiled people. He had a tent just like them. He was right with them. He dwelt in the midst. He tabernacled in the midst of his people. And that's the same word that John is using. The word became flesh and tabernacled. He pitched his tent here. Christmas is a twist in the story. Emmanuel, God with us. God moves into the neighborhood. And it's a broken, evil, messed up neighborhood. And he comes here anyway. Light, as John would say, comes into darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Why? So many things that we could explore from Scripture here. Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You ever walk through a trial in life an area of loss, and it just, it just buckles you. And then somebody else comes up, and they embrace you, and they, they're present with you, and they have the same story. And there's something about that embrace that's different than every other embrace, and the reason is because they know. They know. What is Hebrews 4 saying to us? It says, he knows. He gets it. He's been here. He's experienced the hostility, the rejection, the pain. He's seen it. He, he wasn't as a child in the pool. He wasn't the one in the kiddie pool dividing the waters. You know, as they were drawing on all these, doing all these party tricks. 
at his birthday, right? He, what, that was not what he was doing. His own family members didn't even believe he was the Messiah. He used to show up, physically resurrected for James to believe. It's just all kinds of amazing things. He comes in weakness as a baby. He has to learn motor skills. The, the word, the eternal word has to learn the Hebrew alphabet. He's teetering down the hall. There's Joseph and Mary cheering him on. That's, that's the eternal God. It's absolutely mind-blowing. You think about the humility involved in this. This is why maybe one of the earliest hymns in Philippians chapter 2 was written about the humility of the Savior to do this, to, to take on the, the form of a servant and come in the likeness of men. Who would descend this way? In birth, you see... He's dependent in life. He's rejected in death. He's, he's naked. One of the early hymns from Bishop Melito in the second century, and he pointed to the irony and the paradox of the moment when he said, he who hung the earth is hanging. He who fixed the heavens has been fixed. He who fastened the universe has been fastened to a tree. Oh, unprecedented murder, unprecedented crime. The sovereign has been made unrecognizable by his naked body and is not even allowed a garment to hide him from view. That is why the lights of heaven turned away and the day was darkened. Pastor Hugh Martin described Christ as, quote, not drawing on his divine might and energies, but denying himself their exercise. And get this, withdrawing from the field of action those prerogatives and powers of deity, which in the twinkling of an eye might have scattered 10,000 worlds and hells of enemies. The humility of the word made flesh. Behold your God. Behold your Savior, the incarnate God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He's talking about the incarnation. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's stop and think for a moment, how deep must our sin be if this is the only way of salvation? For God himself, he didn't delegate it out, he came. Jesus, the perfect son, came. Donald McLeod, in that wonderful book that was given out a moment ago, said he was adored by his father and worshiped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, frustration, and embarrassment. He existed in unclouded serenity. His supremacy was total. His satisfaction complete. His blessedness perfect. Such a condition was not something he had secured by effort. It was the way things were and had always been. And there was no reason why they should change. But change they did. And they changed because Christ did not insist on his rights. He had rights to be recognized, to be revered, to be served by angels, to be immune from poverty, pain, 
and humiliation. The acclaimed Oxford scholar Os Guinness once asked this question, who ever heard of a God with scars? Who ever heard of a God with scars? You know, in so many religions in the ancient world, God is the one who does the wounding. The Last Emperor, maybe some of you saw that movie, it came out several years back. The Last Emperor, it's about a child who is chosen to be emperor over all of China. And this child just grows up incredibly pampered in every way. And there's a thousand eunuchs at his beck and call. At any moment, he can just call upon them and they're at his service. And his brother comes and visits him. His brother's a commoner and comes to visit. And he sees the people fawning over, over his brother. And he, and he asks the question, he says, what happens when you do something wrong? Is that even possible for these people to see you do something wrong? And he says, when I do something wrong, the servants get punished. And he took a vase, a treasure of China from the Ming Dynasty, and he smashes it on the floor. And the servants instantly were horrified by what just happened because in just a minute, you could hear one of the servants being beaten to death for the transgression of the king. In Christian faith, in the Christian gospel, it's not the servants who are beaten to death for the transgressions of the king. It's the king who's beaten to death for the transgressions of the servants. Who does this? Behold your savior. And this was the plan all along. It's not like he fell into this. This was exactly what was supposed to happen. He kept notifying his disciples, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to the cross. I mean to go there. It's the hour for which he had been prepared. It was the plan all along. It's a song that's been sung here, Sovereign Grace, for years. What wisdom once devised a plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified the Son rejoice around the throne. It was the plan all along. There was, there was as C.S. Lewis says, there was a deeper magic at work that the powers and principalities were not aware of. They fell right into the plan. <laughs> I love how that's captured a poem entitled The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. And the idea is that this wicked fairy, imagine it, the, the, the wicked fairy is there on, in Bethlehem on Christmas morning sort of pronouncing this prophetic curse on the Christ child. And there's a twist, though, at the end. She says, my gift for the child, no wife, kids, home, no money sense, unemployable, friends, yes, but the wrong sort. The work shy means lazy. Women, wogs, petty infringers of the law, persons with notifiable diseases, poll tax collectors, tarts, prostitutes, the bottom rung. His end, I think we'll make it public, prolonged, painful. Right, said the baby. That was roughly what we had in mind. <laughs> If the baby had a toy mic, he just dropped it right outside the, uh, <laughs> outside the cradle. It was the plan all along. In 1999, my, my weary soul found rest. 
The gospel of John came pouring in. Jesus became larger than life. His mercy became bigger than all my sin. The sufficiency of his promises held me fast. He became the utterly unstoppable, completely sovereign one. And the study of John's gospel actually converged in God's grace and in his providence with my attending my very first Sovereign Grace Conference in 1999. And I walked in, and in session one, we sang a hymn that I had not known. I had never heard this hymn before. And I looked at the screen in 1999, and through thick tears, I couldn't even mouth the words because my lips were shaking. Through thick tears, I read the words, guilty, vile, helpless. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Look, if, if God doesn't come all the way here, if he doesn't dive into the mess that we've made and the mess that we are, how can we call our message good news? If God in Christ didn't come all the way here, pick us all the way up to bring us all the way home, in essence, all we have is another treadmill for the world. We just basically say, jump off your treadmill, jump on our treadmill. Just more achievement, more sweat, more effort, more muscle of, of morality. The gospel's better. <laughs> We got better news to celebrate in our congregations every single Sunday. Throughout this 18-verse prologue, John is being unapologetically theological. Hope the word theology not, doesn't have negative associations in your church because the Bible is enthusiastically theological. Theology isn't disconnected from life. Christian, think about it this way. The bigger God gets in your mind and in your heart, the more you're going to want to trust him the more prepared you're going to be to persevere in faith. We don't trust God more by directly working on the muscle of trust itself. We trust God more by looking at Jesus. We look and we live. We look and we believe. We stand by faith and there's no other way to stand. We trust God more when we let texts like John 1 blast to smithereens, the little five by seven frame we put God in. He's bigger. He's awesome. Tucked into verse 6 is a reference to John the Baptist. Now think about this in terms of ministry. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. How much vibrancy would come into our churches by the Holy Spirit if we brought that truth on board. And in everything that we did, everything that we said, we were shouting to the congregation, we're not the light. And we're pointing up, look, look at this glorious Christ. In, in 1990, a young man, an author by the name of Richard Phillips, ended up sitting at a banquet table with someone who was who he greatly esteemed and greatly uh, respected, a widely recognized minister who was named the late James Montgomery Boyce. And 
Richard Phillips just kind of sat next to him, couldn't believe that he was there, and just did the nervous chatter fanboy thing for a while and until Boyce interrupted him and he said this with a smile across his face. He said, young man, you are talking too much about me. I would suggest that you stop reading my books. <laughs> and start reading the Bible for yourself, focusing on the truth that Jesus will teach you by the Holy Spirit. And they became close friends after that. And for the next 10 years, they became close. And Richard Phillips, in the year 2000, so 10 years later, Richard Phillips is standing around the deathbed of James Montgomery Boyce with a few friends. And they're singing hymns written by Dr. Boyce. And they sang one of his hymns, and Boyce grabbed Richard's arm and pulled him in and with a faint voice, he said, do you see what I'm saying in that hymn? It all flows to Jesus and out from him. Don't ever forget that. And four days later, he died. And Richard Phillips shared a eulogy that from the first time we met until the last breath of his life, it was all about Christ. John the Baptist was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. Friends, who's, who's going to be the hero this Sunday in your church? We're here to bear witness to the light. Let's tell our people this Sunday, look and live. And let's tell them the same thing again the next Sunday. Let's never tire of pointing our people to Jesus, bearing witness to the light. May there be no performance, no gimmicks, no showboating, only overflowing hearts filled with wonder at the glory of Jesus Christ. May, may this be, this coming Sunday and forever Sundays, may there be drummers and bass players and guitarists and vocalists who are dazzled by the glory of Christ. You have one job. Right, doesn't that simplify things? You have one job, <laughs> and it's the best job in the world. It is a glorious privilege. We hold forth the word of God, and God's spirit helps his people see how big and glorious Jesus is. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in scripture. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to save us from our sins. May this news never become old to us, familiar to us. May it go on astonishing us all our days and into eternity with ever-increasing joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.